Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's a special show today. Mm-hmm. We expose the existential threats to America and discuss the views of the day. We continue to talk about Donald Trump. Right. We yeah, won't be course. obsessive. We'll do no more <laughs> talk about Donald Trump than the Democrats do. <laughs> right. How's that? Yeah. And we'll talk about President Biden, what he's up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, joining me today, very special, is uh, Conrad Black, who you've heard before, and Victor Davis Hanson. Conrad Black is an author, columnist, media contributor. Lord Black, we call him. Mm-hmm. You and I both call him Lord Yes, Black. absolutely. Victor Davis Hanson, many of you know, senior fellow at the Hoover Institute. His focus as an academic is classics and military history. Gentlemen, we had an inaugural. Joe Biden was now the president of the United States. Let's talk about the inaugural address. Conrad, what, what did you think of the address, the inaugural address? I always try to be positive about these things. I, I have been extremely critical of Biden as a candidate, and I was no great admirer of his as a vice president or a senator. I, in fact, I never forgave him for what he did to my friend Robert Bork. But with that said, I thought that the conciliatory tone of it was admirable. I thought the delivery given the concerns that he'd raised among uh, almost everybody about his uh, cognitive abilities was, was perfectly adequate. Uh, what worried me a bit was that he clearly implied that scores of millions of Americans are racists and extremists and sociopaths, and, and that is not the case. And it is hard to be altogether credulous about a conciliatory pitch from somebody who is implying that a large number of his countrymen are absolutely incorrigible people. And uh, so I'd be a little worried about the follow through, but I thought the tone was fine. And and it was much better than I expected. And all in all, a commendable effort. Let me give you my reaction. I reacted sort of violently to it. I guess American political philosophy is what I do. But this whole thing of unity, unity, unity is what is what we're all about. Never have we been about unity. I mean, e pluribus unum, but that's not the same thing. Uh, he gave unity a status. I was saying this on Fox. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Liberty, pursuit of happiness, life, equality. Go with Claremont. Go with, you know, whichever part of the great philosophical debate. But you end up with, you know, liberty and equality. That's what we're about. We're not about unity. Uh, faction, Madison says in Federalist 10, is what we're about. A, a group of citizens united by a common impulse of, 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 or passion. And there are differences, and you're not going to, you know, you're not going to resolve them. The problem is how to, problem for this kind of republic is how to sort it out, how to live together, knowing that there are different factions. Am I right about that? I mean, are you unity. I'm not in the business of, of being a Biden booster, but to the extent that I can say something positive about an incoming president, I do it. And, and, and I wish any president of the United States well and hope the president does well. But I think one in one sense only the system has worked here. Uh, the greatest single problem to the atmosphere, and I'm a notorious Trump supporter, was the personality of the president. He was endlessly controversial, even to his supporters. He was an exhausting figure, and and, and he was a human tornado. He was in our face, benignly, as far as I was concerned, but there all day, every day, and all night with his tweets. And the fact that he is gone will bring the temperature down. So in that sense, it isn't unity, but at least it's a sort of de-escalation of abrasions. My fear is that he is using unity as a euphemism for saying, let's have comparative serenity while we simply complete the the political extermination yeah. of our opponents. And and I'm afraid he's using, look, I think it's wonderful of the countries. It was united after Pearl Harbor. The, the, the day after 
President Roosevelt's address on the night of D-Day, Gallup organization reported that 100% of Americans agreed with what he said. Unity is fine in a crisis, but the kind of unity Biden is talking about, I think is at best just a, a reduction of aggression on both sides. But what I fear is that instead of compromising with the Republican leaders in the Congress, which he could do, meaning putting his own extremists over the side, he, he's, he's going to sign up for the Biden-Sanders program to find unity as getting rid of everybody else. Right. Well, the tragedy of Donald Trump was that you're right about the tweeting. And now, of course, the irony is that he's been he's had his Twitter wings clipped and he can't tweet. And his he went out with 51 percent from Rasmussen and I think 47 or 48 from Harris. So the, the more people did not hear Donald Trump and the more that people piled on and demonized him, the better he went out. And they didn't intend that. But I think what the problem with Trump was that he talked really loud. But as far as being a vindictive, I'm not saying it's a problem, but he wasn't vindictive. He didn't weaponize the IRS. He, di he didn't go after the AP reporters. He didn't weaponize the CIA and FBI. But this u unity stuff is sort of uh, a preemptive way of telling us that good old Joe Biden doesn't approve of the stuff that we've been reading. I mean, when you have the Washington Post, two columns in one week, one by Eugene Robinson saying that people that voted for Trump, we said Republicans, mostly white people need to be deprogrammed. Yeah. And then and then the next day, Max Boot saying, we've got to deplatform Fox from cable services. And that's coordinated with all these people from Katie Couric, to Jim Comey, you know, when you talk about burning down the Republican Party or trying Trump after he leaves office, we haven't been in this territory before that I can remember, not even after Richard Nixon left, this, this vindictive hate. And I think their attitude is we're never going to have a situation like this again. And we've got a brief moment. We're not going to blow it like we did with Barack Obama, where we kind of stumbled when we had a supermajority and they had it better then. But they're going to go out and try to change the system, not the policies. And that's what's scary. Can we talk about that for a minute? I, I suspect you're right, Victor. But am I dreaming and, and do I have my my locked in a sort of cement of, of Norman Rockwell nostalgia here when I when I say that if they actually start this packing the Supreme Court, increasing the size of the Senate, uh, ending the filibuster, though I don't think the public would particularly identify with that last issue that much, uh, but, but just doing what they would like to do to make sure they've got an absolute lock on everything. Uh, won't there be a reaction to it? I mean, have, has the American public become anesthetized to these outrages or, or is there not some sort of civic spirit that re requires a degree of continuity and and a promotion of the idea that both sides come to bat sometimes let me answer quickly yeah. and throw conrad black at conrad black you were the one who said to me a couple of times you know before the election it's quite impossible that this man would be elected Right? I couldn't believe it. Yeah, okay. So believe this. No, we, we have an <laughs> and the answer to your question is, yeah, no, I think a lot of people would go along with it. And, 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 I, and I want to go through these uh, particulars. But I, let me just clarify, sounding very academic here. But What I was saying about the unity thing is it was, whether it was well-intended or not, a separate question, and it was not. Because it's not about being unified. It's not about being neighborly. It's about quashing everything, you know, that Trump stood for. But my point is that it was a mistake. It's a mistake to think of that as a kind of fundamental American value. Conrad, you're you're expecting people to be rational rather than emotional. I mean, one of the first things he did, he stopped construction on this 450-mile wall, and then he postponed or suspended all deportations for 90 days. 
And this was at a time when a caravan was coming up here and people were terrified the ICUs in California, Arizona on borderline states are full. People can't get vaccination. The rollout's been a disaster. And uh, people, the, 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 the virus is spiking. So you'd think that rational person would tell the left, wait, this is a bad idea. We'll just postpone it. But he didn't. He jumped at it. And so I think they're going to do a lot of things that I think that just to sum up, I think the left sees him, his duty is basically over with. His job was to carry over this agenda over the finish line, give him uh-huh. a, a, a veneer of respectability and moderation. Now he's done. And notice the first, the, the first story we heard, uh, Bill and Conrad, was from the political. That all of a sudden we were told that Biden suffered cognitive issues. That was about two days ago. And it was very disturbing for him to repeat himself and not be aware of what he had said earlier. That didn't come from Donald Trump. It came from, obviously, the Harris camp. Yeah, look, and I so- agree, Victor, that, that uh, the a number of the opening um, executive orders were, were disturbing. They grasping at straws of optimism, I would say he was, and, and this isn't in fact my opinion, but it would be that he was making a gesture to the far left in his own party, but uh, having made the gesture, he would then turn to try and reach agreement with McConnell uh, and and the uh, McCarthy and, and the other Republican leaders in the Congress on the middle of the road compromises on various issues starting with COVID relief, but including infrastructure and all these other things that, that Trump wasn't able to get past. But that's, that, that's just a hope. I agree. His opening, his opening gestures, stopping the wall on the southern border, stopping the pipeline, throwing 11,000 people out of work. Uh, I thought Buttigieg's little homily about we'll, we'll get the yeah. 11,000 people into good unionized jobs yeah. doing yeah. something else was just nauseating. I, 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 the, I just examined on its face, I thought it was a terrible beginning and a stark variance to the tone that he set in his remarks as he was inducted into the office. But but uh, it, 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 the fact is, there is resistance. I mean, the Democrats may imagine that they can pack the court and all these things, but that, that's not going to be like falling off a log bill. If they actually come that's, up with a bill to expand the court, there will be problems. A little different there. Uh, let's, let's deal with the executive orders here, put them to the side for a moment. What you raised earlier, Conrad, I'd like you to say more about and, and Victor as well, which is this whole thing about about McConnell and the deal. Uh, naive, I guess. I thought that once Georgia was over and those two won, that that was it and you know, they're going to steamroll. But now there seems to be the sense of, no, there's going to be a deal maybe. there won't We won't get rid of the filibuster and there'll be some agreement. Am I wrong about that? Well, you're the inside guy in Washington, Bill. You would know better than I, but that's what that's how they're talking it up. But I, I have to say, I I thought the, the, the weather vane on this one was impeachment. I thought that, that uh, Biden would, he wouldn't say anything publicly, say it's congressional matter, but that he would let it be known privately that uh, that he did not he did not want that to go ahead. It's a complete loser for the Democrats. It keeps Trump hate alive for another month, maybe, but they have no chance of having him convicted. And and uh, it, it is I, I have said this and if you guys disagree with me, please say it. I think it is the dumbest, most fatuous thing I've ever heard as a legislative initiative in the history of the United States. I, I mean, there is an, there is no evidence that he incited violence. There's absolutely nothing to say that it was an, intended to be an insurrection. And, and the idea of going to the Senate for a trial to remove from office a person who has left the office at the constitutional expiry of his term is just insane. 
and, and they're, they, it'll blow up in their faces. So I don't, and, it's an easy shot for, for Biden, and he's not doing it. No, Joe Biden won't call Schumer, and he won't call McConnell to put an end to it, because he doesn't want an end to it. The, the, his own left sees it advantageous. There's this myth, if you go back and look at the tape of Robert Bork and uh, Clarence Thomas hearings, there's a pattern there that Joe Biden talks just like he did the other day about unity, and he's going to be yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then he's vicious. And, and this is a guy who said he would take Donald Trump behind the gym on two occasions and beat the hell out of him. You ain't black. Uh, you're a junkie, he said to person. The corn pot stories uh, put you all in shame. He's got a very vicious streak in him, and he's created this mythology that he's just this nice old guy, and he's not. Yeah. I don't buy, buy this construct that he's, I know that he took them across the finish line, them being the hardcore progressives, but he's got elements in his personality that are not unifying at all. They're vindictive, and I think you're going to see a lot of that. When I remember... Uh, emphatically uh, was uh, during Bush, remember? They want you back in chains. You remember that? Yeah, yeah that was yeah. Romney. He said that about Mitt Romney in 2012. I want, I want, they want you all back. Who was he talking to? Was it Romney? Was yeah, it Romney? he was. But he, worse than what, he was talking to an audience of very successful, professional yeah. African-Americans yeah. that were very okay. confident, independent okay. people. But uh, yeah, look, I put it to you guys that he is also a weakling. I mean, you're quite right to refer to the Clarence Thomas hearings. But it, just in the last uh, year, I forget exactly at what stage, uh, Anita Hill came uh, snorting out of the undergrowth and demanded an apology from Biden for not taking her complaints about uh, Clarence yeah. Thomas more seriously. And he yeah. apologized her. I mean, this guy's been yeah. sitting yeah. On, yeah. On, on that court for what's it been, 30 years or something. That proves your point, though, that he can be vindictive and he can be weak. And those are ingredients that his left wing are going to find you know, very helpful, that he's as vindictive, vindictive as they are, but he's weaker and he can be manipulated. I'm not sure that old Joe Manchin won't go along. He he said the other day that he was open to op uh, allowing Puerto Rico to come into the, the yeah. union. We, we, we can't place any bets at all on Joe Manchin. No, but no, on, the, on the weak thing, let me just ask you this, because I was talking <laughs> to my wife earlier today. She said, she said, well, can't he just call McConnell, Schumer, Pelosi and say, call it off? I said, yeah, no. And I thought, maybe he can't. I mean, how weak is he? If he called Pelosi and said, you know, don't send this, would she say, okay? Would, would she listen to him? Well, I think she's cast the die now, isn't she? Okay. I mean, I think, but I'm think not she, sure she would listen to him. She'd say, oh, no, no, I, this isn't really your business. We're doing this. This is the business of the House I, I, and the business of the Senate. I, I don't, I'm not sure he can stand up to them is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think he wants to either, though. I think he despises okay. Trump. He wants Trump gone. He feels that there are people within the Republican Party that don't want him to be eligible to run again. And that's a subtext, too. So I think we're going to see a pattern here the first few days that's going to go on and on. He's going to be very nasty and angry. And he, he has a he has a scorn on his face when he talks. He doesn't smile. Yeah, when, yeah, when, he, yeah. when he talks about unity, he's shouting unity and he's, he's scowling, yelling. Scowling yelling. <laughs> yeah. I just Yell, think, he yells his way through that speech. Yeah, yeah. Unity. Yeah. I think he's got people around him. He's got the Obama crew in there and the Obama crew is it back in and they're saying, you know what, this time we're going to do it right uh, because we were a different party than we were under Obama. We know what we're doing now. Who's taking over? Who's in charge? Is it Pelosi? Is it Schumer? Is it the Obama people? Is it the AOC people? Yeah, Schumer and Pelosi just react to pressure that affects their own positions of power. I don't think they're ideological. They're left wing, but they're not. When I'm talking about they, it's Kamala Harris, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, the so-called squad, AOC, 
some of the appointments they're making at BOJ, the BLM Antifa people that are have you know the respectable versions of them that are not out in the street but are very sympathetic and active, and then those pressure groups, you know, whether it's the radical abortionist or you know, the people who want to get rid of the Second Amendment or hate speech curtailment of the First Amendment. There's a lot of those interests, and I and they sort of fixate on. As I said, Warren and Sanders, AOC, Buttigieg, all of the candidates that were in the primary, uh, all of them represent various factions. Does Harris have enough stature, uh, Victor and Bill, to be a kind of uh, policy traffic police person and say, all right, we're, th- we're going to move in this sequence? I mean, no, but the answer to that, Conrad, unfortunately, is worse than saying no. She had no stature to be city attorney of San Francisco. She had no stature to be U.S. senator. She's a chucklehead. She can't answer a question. Yeah, she had no stature (laughs) to be uh, a presidential candidate. She had no stature to be a vice president. But each time somebody says she has no stature, she goes on to a promotion. What is unifying about these executive orders? Most of them are, are, are pretty harsh and pretty partisan, right? And divisive. Yes. Correct? If you go back to the uh, debates in last year and you saw those Democratic primary, all the things they espoused when they said, oh, who wants to keep the border open? Hands. Who wants to get rid of the wall? Hands went up. Who wants to have new Green Deal? Who wants to cancel fracking? Hands. All of those issues are, were in those executive orders. And uh, that was the Democratic primary. The only good thing about it was none of them had 51% support and that's why all of those candidates fizzled out. And, and they do they now? I mean, these executive... No, none of them do. None okay, them do. so these executive orders are going to backfire on them politically, correct? I think so. But the irony about all of this is that Donald Trump, when he did things, they did have 51%. His tax reform, correct. his clamping down on China, America first jobs. But it, as Conrad mentioned about his personality, so he, he nullified some of those advantages by gratuitous tweeting and snarky and all that. But he had a, a an agenda, we'll get to that later, that was much more popular than what we've seen on the first day of the Biden presidency. Anything interesting or surprising about this first three or four days of Biden, either appointments or things he said or things, things he's done? I thought that the atmosphere and that little ceremony they had at the Capitol right after the inauguration, uh, which was designed to be a kind of unity celebration, I found it absolutely nauseatingly complacent. I mean, uh, McConnell and Pelosi patting each other in the back, and basically all of them were saying, it's wonderful, it's fabulous, the, the, the ogre has gone and uh, Joe, it's a good old boy. We loved him in the Senate. And it's, you know, it's our turn again. That aberration is over. The nightmare is over. Isn't it wonderful? And, I, and it was, I guess, meant to be a communication to the country that everything was civil and pleasant in the highest offices. I, I thought it was a bunch of self-satisfied people, uh, all of whom uh, are, are the subject of at least collective disregard in the polls. I believe the support for the Congress in the polls is 11%. And, and I, I, there is a, a serious disconnection here between people as, as self-satisfied as they appear to be and a public opinion that, that is so unimpressive. It is. And uh, remember George W. Bush, reportedly Jim Clyburn, said he came up to him at the inauguration and said, you're the savior. You saved us uh by getting Biden back into the race because Biden was the only person that could beat 
what you call the ogre Trump. And, you know, it brings up this question. I can't, our Congressman David Valdeo is a wonderful guy, and he came back and retook his seat that he lost in 2018. But he was the only Republican in California to vote for impeachment. Ten House members did. That was 5% of their delegation. So I, I don't quite understand what, what Liz Cheney and all these people are doing, because they only got 5% of the party to go along with him in the House. Trump is polling right now at 85% of Republicans still have a lot of support for him. And it doesn't mean that he's going to come back necessarily, but the agenda, which we'll get to, is going to remain popular. But what are they thinking? How, what, what is the political upside? I know they say they voted for the, on their conscience and they're men and women of principle, but to impeach in one day without a special counsel's report, no evidence, no legal back and forth, just we're going to impeach him for quote-unquote incitement, whatever that means in this context, and then we're going to move on to the conviction. Are they that out of touch that that's going to resonate, or were they just caught up in this frenzy? To answer Conrad's question, I mean, it was the ceremony we're talking about. It's the return of the swamp, I mean, and the celebration of the swamp people. In terms of the vindictiveness here and the punishing of Trump and Trump people and scouring you know, the, the Trump agenda and, and putting it down, I wanted to ask a question I don't know if it's related or not, but it bothers me. Is anyone more vindictive than the Lincoln Project? And who are they? Are these Republicans? I know some Republicans who support the Lincoln Project. Is it mainly Republicans? Do you know, Victor, Conrad? Well, they're Republicans in the sense that if you look at Steve Schmidt or uh, Rick Wilson, they've all worked either on the McCain or the um, Romney campaigns, but they're very quiet about, as are you know, the Bulwark or the Dispatch or all of these groups where they're getting funded. Yeah, I'm not a conspiracist, but I do think a lot of the money's coming from people who don't would otherwise not agree with them. And and I think if you look at what they're saying now and doing, they don't have they don't have an existence without Donald Trump. Is there any good more vindictive and personal here in terms of wreaking vengeance on people? I think they names. Feel, yeah, I think they feel that their careers in the swamp, they were columnists, yeah. they, were on okay. the, they were destroyed by Donald Trump, their speaking fees were gone, their influence was gone, they couldn't call up the president and say, I think you should do this. And for them, that was very important. But Wasn't also, Kellyanne Conway's husband one of them? Yeah, he was. Oh, sure. Yeah. Let's talk about Donald Trump. Let me use uh, myself as an example here, as I guess maybe a goof on this. I said the other day on Fox, I said, they said, what about Trump? I said, well, we're fine. I mean, you know, he's exited stage left, stage right, whatever. Uh, I don't think he'll be back. I don't think he'll run again. But the Trump doctrines, uh, you know, in ascendancy, they're there. They're coherent. Uh, 75 million people voted for him. And my guess is someone else will take the reins with this uh, agenda. Uh, you know, we know we know what the elements are, and uh, and and uh, you know, it's it's and, and ride it to victory. And I I realized maybe I was talking only for myself because a, a couple of friends wrote and said, "Have you taken a look at your Republican Party lately? They're not with you at all. Are they not?" Don't they, quite apart from Donald Trump's personality, don't they agree that these policies were good and successful and coherent and right and that they should be carried into the future? I think that almost all, almost all of them are actually Trump policy supporters. But we get into this ghastly heresy of Trumpism without Trump. 
And my own view for what it's worth is, and this is a bit of a sideshow, but is that he didn't make an all out effort to win in Georgia because he felt that he had been let down by the never Trumpers suddenly surging out of the woodwork right after the election. And his view was that he, he would do the necessary to sort of put himself on the record in Georgia. But uh, with that secretary of state of Georgia and that governor and so on, it wasn't promising. And it would be a better thing all around to let the Democrats give their quasi Marxist program a try so that the country could see how terrible they are and couldn't blame their inability to turn the United States into a vast commune uh, on the obduracy of a narrowly Republican Senate. And on this business of Trump going forward, in an odd way, Jack Dorsey has done him a favor. I mean, his popularity goes up the less people hear of him. As we all know, all ex-presidents are popular after a while. I, I was present with my father as a young boy at a baseball game in Cleveland in the mid-50s when the presence of Herbert Hoover in the stadium was announced. There was a huge standing ovation. And this is a man who had to skulk around in a disguise for a year after he left office. And and I think that if Trump just does, if he just sits there in Mar-a-Lago, you know, uh, the, the Trump Tower, wherever he wants, and, and doesn't say that much, he is going to look better and better. And the Republicans are going to come to the realization that there is no future for that party except the Trump program. And if you're taking the Trump program, you've got to be awfully careful about trying to take it without taking Trump. But I really liked the president. I've gotten to know him some, as, as you guys have. But I will say I I don't want him to run. I don't want him, I don't want him four years later, seventy eight and angrier. I think that's fine, but I think he has to approve his successor, and he sure, has to. That's okay. Him. He's I, the I only think guy okay. in the country but, who can who can go out all in almost any state except between California and New York can go almost anywhere and get thirty thousand people that to sit sure. in the cold for two hours waiting for him. I think I wrote a column on the twenty second of November, and I talked to couple of people in the White House. And what if Trump had done this? He had said, it's been three weeks from the election. Anytime you have 100 million ballots that are cast outside or not on election day, you're going to have problems. We thought there were problems. We thought we won. We had an obligation to our voters to ask for recounts. We did. To go to court and say that state legislatures were improperly, illegally, the will of these legislatures was overturned. We did. We wanted some data. We got the data. And we don't think, as the electors are coming up to be chosen on December 11th, that we're going to that we're going to succeed. So I don't Trump concede. But I'm going down to Georgia and I'm going to move down to Georgia because we have to win two Senate seats. And I'm going to appeal to all of my supporters that your vote will count and all you independent voters that you have no choice between socialism and conservatism and you've got to go with us and had he done that and won those seats and they were winnable then i think right now we'd have a different talk he would have gone out sky high we wouldn't have had any of this mess and uh he he would be feared not that he can't still be that way and finally very briefly to to address his uh, agenda i think Nobody on the Republican side is talking about privatizing Social Security or we got to go back and just cut the gap capital gains, that kind of Bush stuff or illegal immigration is an act of love that Jeb Bush said. That, that's over with. And what's even stranger is that there were elements of Trump's agenda that I think the left was bewildered by because when he said we didn't want any optional um, wars in the Middle East or he appealed to African-Americans on drug sentencing. 
or America first and workers need, we have to buy American and China's ripping us off. All of those, they're going to try to incorporate those and just, I think, continue, continue with it and just say, Donald Trump's fingerprints are on them. So we're going to say that he's awful, but, and these were really ours that he stole from us or something. But I have a lot of, I have a feeling that those issues will remain. What's going to be different, of course, Bill, and you know that better than any of us, are the cultural issues, things on First Amendment, universities, free speech, abortion. That's going to be the big change, I think. Yeah, one of the less noticed uh, executive orders is this madness about um, boys and girls' sports. I'm the father of sons. Yeah, daughters. Well, you don't have to have daughters. You can understand daughters, young women. These women compete, and then some guy shows up and you know, he's bigger and he's stronger and he runs faster or hits the ball harder or than a spirit rocket. It's ridiculous. It's impossible. Now, the, the, there you go. Back to what you were saying earlier. Won't the American people react to that? Won't fathers and mothers in the suburbs react to that? My daughter's been training. She was going to win the state. And now she's fourth because these three guys entered in. Well, won't people go nuts about that? It's like all of those issues, Bill, that privately people do one thing and then publicly they say something. If okay. you talk to Stanford professors that are very liberal and you talk yeah. about mandatory diversity training. Yeah. They're the most cynical people in the world. You hear them talk publicly and they praise it to the skies, but they make sure. the necessary adjustments in their private life. Sort of like that. Remember the press sisters, they were those two huge Russian athletes in the sixties shot putter and javelin thrower. And every yeah. time they had the yeah. Russian American games, yeah. the U S track coach would demand some type of saliva test to see yeah. if men or women. And there was always a suggestion they were men that had some type of transgender metamorphosis. And they won all of the, the uh, shot put and then the heavy track events. Everybody in the United States was angry about Russian cheating. It's kind of ironic that we're back in a weird way to that. Yeah, and, and the party that's supposed to be feminist, pro-woman, so on. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I think it was Karl Rove was asked the other night when I saw it, is the Republican Party in trouble? And I've heard several people like Rove and others say, absolutely, it's in trouble. It's in disarray. Is it? I, I mean, my answer was, no, it's fine. I mean, we got the blueprint. Trump gave us the blueprint. Is it in disarray because they can't figure out what to do? It's clear what they should do, right? I mean, we sort of describe what they should do, which is embrace the, the Trump doctrines, which were so successful. No. Yeah, I think so. I I think the Democrats have a much more serious divisions. I mean, we've said this, but there are a lot of extremists in that party that are way beyond where the public is. Well, Republicans embrace this because I was I was just talking to our our, our, our friend, Brian Kennedy, you know, Brian, uh, Victor. uh, And and he said, what what Republican, how many Republicans are standing up and embracing Trump and, and the Trump policies right now? Handful? Maybe, you know, a few few more in the House. Name well, the people in the Senate who are embracing the Trump policies. Trump is at the nadir of his popularity, Bill. And there was only 10 people, that nine people that followed Liz Cheney. Okay. And, all, and so that was 95% of the House delegation that have their, you know, their hand on the pulse of their districts. They know what's going on. They, they see the polls. 85% still support the agenda. I think where we're fragmented, and it's not as bad as the Democrats, because they're ideologically fragmented is the elite of the Republican Party. And by that, I mean the entire array of retired presidents, retired senators, think tank people, the columnists, the magazine writers, all of them, all of them are never Trump. And they feel that they exercise enormous 
influence and leverage. I don't think they do as much as they claim, but they're going to continue. And they're kind of bewildered now because they think they've won. Trump's gone. And yet they want to, they don't know what to do about the agenda. And they don't know what they're going to do now without Donald Trump, because that was their reason to exist for the last five years. But we're going back to what I said earlier about McConnell and Peggy Noonan and George Will and these people who, who, who with, apparently without a second thought are convinced to write. We just go straight back to the status quo, Andy. This was a, an interlude and, and it's over and, it, it, and it's, it's gone as thoroughly as it, as it had not existed before it suddenly arrived. This can't be right. I mean, Trump's program was validated in the election, except for president. I think we should define what that means, though, Bill. What was the status before Trump? And does that mean we're these people seriously think we're going to have a, a real detente with China as we were uh, a partnership, as Biden once outlined it? Do they think we're going to go back to the Middle East and we're going to say, you know, Saudi Arabia, please don't recognize Israel. That was a bad trend. Let's put that embassy back in Tel Aviv. Let's tell the Syrians that the Golan Heights remain theirs. Let's get those $700 million back to the Palestinians. Maybe we'll go back into the Iran deal. NATO members, we've offended you. It's all right if you don't make your 2%. Is that going to happen? Uh, only that, a bit of it, I think. I, yeah. I, only a bit of it. I, I think yeah. it's more the posturing and the atmospherics and the yeah. optics. That'll I think back. so, too. Does that mean, guys, I'm thinking what you said, it was you, Victor, I think the nadir of his, his popularity that once this time passes, people will come back. The Republican Party will come back. Yeah, I think maybe we could look at very quickly, and some of, you know them better than I do probably. If you look at candidates who seem to be eager to run, Tom Cotton or Christy Noem or Mike Pompeo or Marco Rubio or Nikki Haley or DeSanctis, all of them, I don't think any of them in the next year or two or in their packs they're forming are going to have an anti-Trump, let's get back to right. doctrinaire republicanism. They're all, they're all ex- at least simulating, uh, we want closed borders, we want to buy American first, we want jobs for American workers, we want energy development. Of course, some of that is, I think, in some areas, Trump did more for doctrinaire republicans than doctrinaire republicans did. He had a lot of, you know, on tax reform and deregulation yeah. And Title IX and stuff, he was really good on it. Republicans supported that. I put it to you both that the key as to who is going to pick up this torch, and I agree entirely with with what Victor just said, that the future of the Republican Party is the party that under Trump heavily encroached in these Democratic fiefdoms the African-American vote, the Latin American vote, the traditional working class, the kind of Joe Scranton Democrat, uh, Joe, a Biden Democrat. And, and um, that's where it is. And, and the key is who is Trump himself going to support? I, I, I personally agree that I think, I mean, unless things change, it would be a, a, a bit imprudent for him to try and run again but i think he can advise his huge following who to support and i my own guess is that the front runner at this point is cruz uh, i mean i know he was not popular in the senate but he's carried water on both shoulders for the ex-president and and he's he's been a loyal soldier i mean some of the ones you just mentioned Victor, are, are, they're, they're not, uh, we got this expression in French Canada, the French Canadians generally make up the government in this country, or head the government, even though they're a minority in the country, because they're politically astute, and it's called puzzle chef, not a leader. 
And, 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 and that's what I used to say to you, Bill, in your podcast. I just couldn't believe the U.S. would put Biden in because he, he didn't meet that test. He's not a leader. And, uh, and I, I would say that as some of the ones you just ticked off as the, as the Republican candidates. I mean, but I think Cruz could sort of make it. And he is very fluent. And he could become not a Trump in terms of a crowd puller, but a, a, a distinctly formidable man uniting a sort of elegant smoothness and uh, you know, distinguished legal professionalism with with a, a bit of that hard-hitting Trump Texan version of it that, that would work. But I mean, isn't that the answer that you get somebody who doesn't have the personality abrasions of Trump, but is a loyal espouser of 90% of Trump's program and is approved of by Trump himself? If you uh, talk about abrasiveness and Cruz, you'd be getting pretty close to... Trump's reputation—he's just not liked. I understand that personally, but I—I I, I think the public doesn't feel that he. I mean, for, uh, I'm Maybe. a great admirer as you are of the president. He's an old friend of mine, but uh, and a former business associate. But uh, he, he did say things that were at times gratuitously annoying. I think Conrad. You're right. And if you look at the data on the election, and especially in Georgia, they, they're sort of the same. And by that, I mean, people had told us if Donald Trump got 12 percent, 13 percent of the African-American vote or 33 percent of the Hispanic vote up from 27 and up from eight, in the Af- he was going to be unbeatable. And he was he lost the popular vote. I don't think anybody denies that. So where did he lose? I do. He, he, well, it, it no, was, no, uh, I, that's popular vote. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was. I, I, I'm just talking about the popular vote. I'm sorry. Vote. I'm sorry. To yeah. But but uh, I think where he lost it was in the swing voter suburbanite that liked his policies, but they just wanted to go into a fetal position, put their hands over their ears, and say, "I wanted to all go away." They couldn't take. Yeah, and and suburban women apparently. Yes. I mean, what, yes. what, yeah. what the hell do I know about suburban women? But no. uh, but uh, they they apparently just took against them. So I guess what you're saying is that you do you have somebody that has that earthiness to get seven or eight million people out in those electoral swing states in a way that. Trump did, but Romney and McCain could not appeal to them, and yet not be so gratuitously offensive or and bridge that, you know, square that circle so that the independent voter would go with them. Pick somebody right now. You would not held to it forever. I didn't. I don't think he's going to make it. I should have out of deference because he's done so. He's been such a, a servant to Trump as Pence. I don't think he's got quite no. that chemistry. No. And, uh, the person who is the loyalist of all of them to the Trump doctrine and to Trump personally, but he's not a, uh, he's not a, uh, doesn't like to mix it up is Pompeo. He's the only person yeah. who in that cabinet was loyal to the end and not in the, not necessarily in an obsequious way, but uh, I haven't seen any of them to tell you the truth. I'm a little bit worried because the ones that are the most charismatic and are the best campaigners and the best Speakers have problems of authenticity, and that's Nikki Haley and Marco Rubio. Rubio, days, he, <clears throat> I, I don't think that guy's got the gravitas to be president. Yeah. I don't think he'll ever recover from what, that thing with Christie. You know, no, I don't there. either. But I mean, the two of them—they're photogenic, they're charismatic. But I think, they're yeah, and, and he speaks well. I mean, he speaks he's a better well. speaker than Dan Quayle, but he's a bit of a Dan Quayle. Yeah, I, but Haley it would be stronger, I think. But yeah. I, I agree, she's a careerist. Yeah. I, I, look, I think I think Noam is good, but I just have a, a, a real problem imagining that anybody in South Dakota knows how to run the, the, the real, you know, the whole country. But maybe I'm being unfair. I, look, she's great. I, I admire her, and she's very attractive woman but uh 
but a, I mean, as a president, I don't know. My guy is DeSantis. He gets stuff done, and he gets it done for the right reasons. He's perfectly fine ideologically. He is courageous. Perfect contrast to the Democrats. Perfect contrast to Cuomo. I mean, the, the New York, Florida thing, and you can do the Florida, California thing, I guess. Victor, right? Too. He's a fighter, too. He likes to give it back when they give it back. But, guys, I think we have to accept that nobody can pull the crowds like Trump. I mean, Henry Kissinger (laughs) said to me the other day that he came with his family to the United States in 1938. And in all that time, the only other president who could pull the crowds like Trump was Roosevelt. And that was a time before television. It was a real rarity to see the president. Well, you don't know. You don't know. I mean, I, you know, I was, I'm a Reagan guy, remember? You know, I served Reagan. Reagan was pretty good at crowds. He was a wonderful speaker and a great president. But, but uh, I mean, he, I, 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 he, I don't know. I, I don't think he could quite get the crowds that Trump is. The thing about Trump was that Trump took on all of the institutions that people had felt betrayed by, whether it was professional yeah. sports, professional yeah. sports, Hollywood, the universities, the foundations, the swamp, the media, everybody had felt these people hate us. They just insult us every day. We never say anything. And now this guy is so toxic to him. He's like kryptonite and they're melting down and revealing their true essence. And he was chemotherapy to their, to their, to to their cancer. Give me me, just for fun. Give me a moment or an event. Didn't have to be large during early in the Trump presidency where you said, boy, I got it. Like with Reagan, you knew when he did the, you know, when he fired the air traffic controllers, holy crap, he really did that. Uh, You know, he, he did something he did small or large that sent a signal. Well, when he pulled out of the Paris Accord and the Iran Uh, deal a couple of weeks apart, by the way, as a verbal encapsulation of it, with Reagan, I thought it was when he asked about the Cold War, he said, uh, we win and they lose. And yeah. with Trump, I thought, it odd. you may think this is odd, but when the Prince of Wales said, started lecturing him about the uh, dangers of uh, climate change, and he said, yes, there's climate change. It's called weather. I, I thought it was brilliant. He said something about Merkel, too, when he, he said he went over there and said, you've got to pay your 2%. And they said and they asked him in the press conference. And he said, so are they going to pay their 2% or not? Oh, I will reveal myself as a real uh, swamp creature. And you'll wonder this. But when he said, oh, gosh, it was just my epiphany. He said he wasn't going to the White House Correspondents Center. Son of a gun. You know, Elaine and I went to that for probably 15 straight years, walked out on three or four of them because it was so gross, the insulting comments made about Republicans, Republican presidents, Newt Gingrich, other people. But when he said that, I said, he really just doesn't care. Yeah, and then he went to that night and gave a speech to to a huge (laughs) audience denouncing the press. Yeah, that almost poses a philosophical question because we've been talking about what if he didn't have these rough edges? But I'm not sure that anybody could have taken the level of abuse that was going to come by this radical change in agendas without having those rough. They were sort of like a porcupine's quills that pr- protected you from getting to the skin. And uh, I don't know any other, I don't think any of the Bushes, Romney, McCain, any recent political figure, had, had they tried to make those necessary changes, they would have been when they went after George Bush in 2007 and and really called him Hitler. Remember that and all of it, he just sort of said, yeah, yeah, yeah. "I'm not I'm not going to reply to that. I'm not going to lower the dignity of the office." And he really empowered them, and he wouldn't fight back. 
And Romney wouldn't fight back. And when they metaphorically threw Paul Ryan, you know, was going to throw a person over the cliff on a wheelchair. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Rom Romney had an elevator. We didn't hear anything. And John McCain was senile. He had 11 houses. He was carrying on an affair. We didn't hear a pushback. So I, Trump, he, he, he came, that was his appeal to his base that he was not going to take it and he was going to give it back. He had, he had a, one formula that worked for him for a while, and that is, if you look at all of his worst things he tweeted, they were all reactive. They weren't preemptory. You know, he waited till somebody, you know, even when he made that unfortunate remark about it's better to be, to kill somebody than to be captured uh, about yeah, John McCain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was, that was a reply to John McCain who said all of the crazies have come out of the woodwork yeah. and vote for this guy. So, and uh, finally, I think people just got, it served its purpose and it, it got every, it got everybody, you know, tit for tat. And then at the end, he was sort of like the Magnificent Seven or Shane or whatever, John Ford Western, Ethan Edwards and, and the searchers, he just, his old, his role was over and he walked out and he didn't get any of the credit that he deserved, but everybody was glad to see him go. But Victor, there is a way to, to play hardball with, with, and still be there sort is. of good humored about it. I mean, Roosevelt and Reagan never attacked other people directly. Roosevelt, all, all the eckies and, uh, you know, various, a lot of people, a lot of people to do the attacking and say nasty. No, you're, you're, no, you're absolutely and, right. And, no. and Reagan said, you know, uh, my 11th commandment is never speak ill of a fellow Republican. I mean, I, I'm very pro-Trump, but he, he needn't have said all that about low energy jab. And he knew no. for sure that George W. knew there were no uh, no, that was no. You're I mean, it's, that's the that's the problem. I, I mean, think he that, had a sort of light touch as well as a hard. Yeah, a hard or maybe touch, it may, maybe or maybe Conrad, it's the frequency. Remember Reagan when they had the uh, Black Panther handouts that they were forcing the Hearst family to give. Reagan, who was running for president, said, "I hope there's botulism there in the." Yeah. Yeah. And then when there were riots at Berkeley, I remember being a, a student. He said. Uh, well, if we're going to have a bloodbath, let's get let's get it over with. But the yeah. point and, about those is he didn't say them very frequently. Trump could have got away with three or four outrageous things like that. But I think it was the frequency of always making one or two nicknames were funny. Crooked Hillary, maybe for a while. But to do it every single time, yeah. it's, it kind of wore out. It's like a comedian. Yeah, and, and, and mocking people because they're short, like Rubio and Bloomberg. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, most people don't like that. No, they don't. They don't. And he he doesn't like it when they did it to him. So that was another problem. I mean, yeah. fundamentally, the public thought that Reagan was a nice guy. They and did. even people who didn't agree with him politically. I, I mean, a lot of people hated Roosevelt policy wise, but they thought he was a gentleman and a, sort of an aristocrat with a good sense of humor. But but uh, the, the a great many people really sincerely believed that Trump was a terrible and belligerent bully which I don't think he is, but a lot of he, people thought that. Why do you think, just to, I, I want to ask you a question, both of you, why do you think people ended up hating George W. Bush as much as they did Trump, if you look at the poll, exit polls, when if he didn't really reply to any of that? And throughout his presidency, he had a few slips and, you know, a little bit of acrimony, but he wasn't, uh, he didn't attack people, he didn't make fun of them, and yet the left just devoured him. And they thought well, his, well I, they thought it was it was one weak and two yeah. dumb. I think. I mean, George yeah. W. wasn't articulate. He, no. His malapropisms were legendary. I mean, look, his father was a fine gentleman and an authentic war hero, but he wasn't very articulate. 
And he mm-hmm. wasn't a good party leader. I mean, we got to remember, he allowed that charlatan Ross Perot to steal 20 million votes. I know. But, but my point is that it's not just Trump's personality, because when Bush sort of tried to show magnanimity, they interpret that a weakness to be exploited yeah. rather than be reciprocated. So there's something more about Trump. It wasn't just if he had been a failed president. OK, but the, I think there was the, the idea that this guy was successful in his agenda and he knew how to get on the wrong side. He was not going to be a golf golfing Republican, he was going to go for the whole, although he golfs, he was going to go. Look, for look the his whole. enemies were afraid of him. I mean, the they swamp were, they was were, afraid they, of him. They were afraid, they weren't of, him. afraid so I, of George W. So I think they thought his fatal flaw was he gave his enemies ammunition that he didn't have to because it wasn't a, completely essential to enacting his agenda. And that's what's tragic about him, I think. And, and there'd been a stylish aspect to him. I mean, I, I, again, we're all pro Trump here, but if he'd been sort of a classy guy at times, that would have that would have uh, that would have had a great effect. But all in, and, and a lot of it was the media hostility. But uh, a lot of his problem was that very few people really saw his good side, as we all know. And Percy yeah. is a very charming man. He's a wonderful raconteur. He's a rather gracious man, a very loyal friend, all of that. And and that that never came across. Well. Now, some of it was the sandbag job of the national political media, but some of it was his own presentation wasn't great. Back to what you were saying earlier, a lot of pent-up frustration, the Republicans and the, the new Republicans, you know, the working people, um, and which he's now elevated to be the majority of the party, seems to me, in the, in the Bork stuff, the Clarence Thomas stuff, being beat up, Romney getting beat up, Bush getting beat up, the other Bush getting beat up. God, can we get somebody who could fight back? And he fought back. I mean, he did. And, and man, I, we, I, we cheered him. We cheered him for doing that. How harmful were, were the last month, let's say Georgia and January 6th? I think the tragedy was it was unnecessary. It, it, it didn't have to go on that long, and he didn't. we didn't have to lose those seats. And it was it, within yeah. Trump's power yeah. and within Trump's uh, abilities to prevent both of them. And yet he didn't do that. And I think already... We've magnified it a little way out of what it was. I mean, Nancy Pelosi said the other day she thought he was a co-conspirator and could be charged with murder. So the, the fact that he's mute now and he's he's going to be America likes second chances. And I don't know if that means a political second chance, but the empathy is already going away uh, from his accusers. I think they're, they've overreached and they're going to continue to overreach and he'll be re- rehabilitated. But I think you're both right that not rehabilitated to where he might have been had he conceded earlier the Electoral College and then won both those seats. I think we would be talking right now about a, possible, a viable candidacy in four years, and I'm not sure he's going to be re- rehabilitated to that degree. I'm a more optimistic for Trump than Victor is. I, I, I agree with what you say about Georgia, but I, I, as I said earlier, I think that... Um, and I'm mind reading here, and I have absolutely no standing to do it. But my, my guess is that he felt even badly let down by the Republican establishment on the election. They weren't serious about really opposing what he thought to be a scandalous theft of the election. And uh, now, of course, he absurdly exaggerated it, and the idea that Pence could ignore a Senate uh, vote, a clear Senate vote on the composition of the Electoral College was nonsense. I mean, Trump had problems like that. But um, 
he felt that fine, let, let, let the Democrats get control of the Senate and let them put their program in so the country can see just how bad these guys are. Uh, they should have reelected me and they should have reelected a Republican Senate. And, 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 you know, if they're not doing it, then, they, you know, let them let them have the consequences of that. On the January 6th thing, I think the impeachment, if it gets to a vote, will be a terrible fiasco for the Democrats. Everything we see from the FBI is that there's absolutely no connection at all uh, 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 between Trump and, and personally or the Trump campaign or any anyone associated with Trump and 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 the violence at the Capitol. It, it, none of it was spontaneous. It was all pre-planned, at least the leaders of it. And, and that presumably will come out in evidence. I think that, that if Trump just lays low for a while, he will benefit from it. It's not only people like second chances, Victor, they like ex-presidents. And, and if he just goes quiet. People will start to think, you know, a quiet Trump is not an annoying Trump. And he actually did a lot of good things. And unless there's a better candidate, and I think this administration will be extremely vulnerable. I assume Biden won't run for re-election, but, but whoever the Democratic candidate is will have to try and you know defend the record of the present administration. And it's not going to be easy. And so I think Trump has, he has a chance. So that's what he wants. But I think it would be better for everyone if he could settle on the best candidate and support yeah. that candidate. Yeah. How many senators are going to vote to convict him if this fiasco continues? No, I'd say not more than three or four Republicans. Six, not, maybe. What, what is Mitch McConnell? How does he vote? Uh, in the end, he votes against conviction, I think. And, I, I mean, it would be insane not to. Yeah, I think so, too. I think I mean, he's Senate. slippery and he's not he's not uh, a rock of Gibraltar principles, but he's and not insane. He's also going to benefit because these guys are going to way overplay their hand. They already have. Right. I think they're going to go full left, full hardcore left. We haven't seen anything like it in our lifetime because Obama didn't have anybody on his left like these people. He had he had compromised the left and they were all willing to to moderate. These people are not. They're very different. So if they do this and we have a packed court, the big one, the end of the filibuster, which opens the way to all this. You don't see Repu- you don't see Republican governance for a long time, do you? No, scariest one for me is a national federal voting law that will over override yeah. like eighteen year old vote state legislatures, and that'll yeah. be a transition to mostly same day registration and all mail in voting yeah. Yeah. things like yeah. that. That will no, what, what about the electoral college uh, members from this state? Will who, however the state votes is beside the point. They will be committed to the yeah, leading. That, that's the nat- yeah, yeah, the national voter compact. They don't even need to reverse the. Okay. Uh, the now, can you can you put that through without a constitutional amendment? Yeah, it's 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 seventy five percent of the way there. The state legislatures have already. I think they're up to two hundred and thirty votes. Once they get 270 votes, they can override. I think they can, unless somebody goes to the Supreme Court and says, you know, this is a violation of the Constitution because they're having a compact between states that doesn't involve the federal government or it's an antithetical. But so far, I think Colorado just voted was the last. Last question, not the Republican Party, but the Republic, given the last 15 or 20 minutes, optimistic about the continuation of this experiment in ordered liberty or not? Uh, not as much as I've been for most of my life, because, uh, I I think what got us here was something, how did we get here? And it wasn't just left and right Democrat. It was globalization that really enriched two coasts and two types of people. 
with the university, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, and enrich, enrich them in a way we've never seen in history, four or five trillion dollars in Silicon alone. And then yeah. 50 million people living in the United States that were not born here, either yeah. legal or illegal residents now. And, and then this hollowing out of people whose skills could be Xerox overseas, you know, muscular labor. And that's, that's going to be hard to overcome. And if we have a geographical component to these differences, it's 1860, a red-blue state, we're going to be in trouble. And Red? Uh, I, I'm a bit more optimistic than that because, I, frankly, as a non-American, I was never quite as thoroughly steeped in the mythos of the country as, as you guys probably were. And, um, you know, I don't want to sound like a an apologist for George III here, but uh, let us face facts. They, the, the British doubled their national debt largely to to throw the uh, French out of Canada, and and um, and it was the greatest diplomatic feat in modern history for Franklin to bring France back in to help Americans throw the British out of America yeah. and take a stance yeah. for republicanism and democracy. But it, 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 it's it, fundamentally, it's a powerful country. It's a very, very motivated, talented population uh, occupying the, the great center of a very rich continent and with institutions that, though they're, as we know, very imperfect, they work well and they work better than any other large country in the world except maybe the British. And and um, so, yes, I think so. But I think it's a difficult time. But as always, in the crisis periods, you've got to get the leader. And it isn't the present president. Whoever You've got, you've got to get the, the updated version of Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Well, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com and follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. And a special favor here. If you like this show or didn't like this show or thought this show might have a future, let me know. There's some talk about doing a show along these lines with these two guys. Right. Specifically, I mean, if they like, of course, they like your show. I mean, they're listening and they keep listening. But if they like this interview with Lord Black and Victor Davis Hanson and yourself uh, and like the you know perspective of you three, just email in and say, hey, I like this and I could use some more of it. Good. Very good.